Today's scripture comes to us in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 to 21. This is the word of God. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. All right. Good morning, church. Uh, Thank you, brother, for that prayer. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for sharing that vision you have for the revival. That was great. Wanted to welcome a sister who is here for the first time, uh, Josephine Pang. Uh, I believe we shared the last name. She spells it different, but I think it's Pang, right? Josephine, where are you sitting? Sitting over there. Is it Pang? Yes? Is it Bong? Okay. <laughs> Let's give uh, Josephine a warm welcome. So today we'll be concluding our series in Zechariah with a message titled, Holy to the Lord. I hope the uh, series has been beneficial to all of you, as it has been for me. Uh, Kind of sad that it's ending, actually. But uh, Next week we're going to have a guest speaker, uh, Nathan Boyette, come. Uh, He is someone who is hoping to church plant in the Chantilly area. He'll be coming to share uh, a message that the Lord has placed upon his heart, and then um, afterwards, I believe it's uh, Pastor Jacob preaching, and then I'll I'll come back after two weeks or so. I'm going to be here, but I'll come back to the pulpit after two weeks or so, okay? All right. Uh, In our home, like most of your homes, uh, we make a distinction between everyday common wear, like the Ikea plates that we use for most of our meals, and then the much nicer plates that are made from high-quality porcelain that are typically called chinaware, right? We also make a distinction between the everyday common uh, utensils we use versus the silverware, the more expensive ones we use maybe two to three times a year on special occasions. Uh, For those of you who are into sports, maybe you're into Competitive swimming, you've done that in the past. You know that this principle also applies in the pool, right? You have your everyday common swimsuit that you use for all your practices and 90% of your swim meets, but then you have your much more expensive, what's called, what I know to be called tech suits that give you these special powers to glide in the water like a dolphin. All right, it doesn't boost your, you know, your your speed that much, but it helps. It cut shades off maybe a few seconds. We, we only use those just a few times out of the year. Now, the idea of being 
set apart for special use is what holiness basically means, right? There's this object that is uh, set in contrast with another object. You know, one is normally plain and common. The other is normally special, and thus it's set apart and counted as holy. And this idea of holiness is one of the, I would say, main themes of Scripture uh, that we are able to see even in this book, Zechariah. Um, because we have a God who stands above everything else. Right? He is holy. He, and he's not just holy, by the way. In the case of God, we say that he is holy, holy, holy. Right? That's how Scripture describes him. That is never said of us. Even when we become the best version of ourselves in heaven, we will just be called a holy people. There's one holy, okay? Not holy, holy, holy like God is described. Now, God's purpose to set apart a holy people for himself was made very clear uh, since the time of the Exodus, where God called his people to come out of Egypt and to set themselves apart from Egypt so that they can devote themselves to worshiping the true God, right? Let my people go so that they may worship me was God's word to Pharaoh. If you're thinking about my opening analogy, it's definitely not a perfect one since it would be a very big mistake for us to think that God chose the Jews because they were inherently more special or more valuable than the rest of the people around them, right? The truth actually is that they were not like fine porcelain china. They were definitely not tech suit material as compared to the Egyptians of their time. In fact, what were they? They were lowly slaves who had nothing to offer. So by any standard of measurement, they were less valuable and the least impressive kind of people during that time. And yet, for some reason, God chose the weak to shame the strong. So when we think about our own holiness, we need to begin with an accurate view of ourselves and understand that God called us out of our own Egypts, not because there was something about us that caught his attention, right? It wasn't because we were somehow worthy to be set apart from all the rest of these lowly, common, lesser people than us. No, it would be more accurate to say that out of all of the plates and pots and pans present in the home, he actually chose the ones that were the most broken and flawed, right? The items that we would normally just casually chuck into the trash. It's as if he stooped down, right, to pick out each of us from the trash bin in order to set us apart and count us as holy to the Lord. That's a more accurate picture, brothers and sisters, of who we are and how God chose us out of this world. Notice how this chapter mentions one of the annual Jewish festivals called the Feast of Booths, right? Another uh, 
name for it would be the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And let me be very honest, okay? This kind of threw me off. <laughs> I am not someone who regularly thinks about Jewish customs and traditions, okay? I mean, Jewish customs still feel very foreign to me. And so I had to go into somewhat of a deep think and really consider what the Lord would have wanted his people to learn as they celebrated this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And here, here's the outline that I came up with for the message today, okay? It, I, I confess it's not the easiest message to understand. It wasn't the easiest one to prepare, to be sure. But uh, this is what the Lord has spoken to us today, okay? We're given to us today. Part one, <clears throat> the Feast of Booths, what is it? And why should we even care? Okay, let's, let's unpack what the Feast of Booths is, what the Feast of Tabernacles means. Part two, our tabernacling lives, okay? So as you should know, there, were, there was a greater tabernacle where God symbolically dwelled, and, and there were these smaller tabernacles surrounding it where God's people had to, to live right, temporarily. And so we'll, we'll consider what that meant, what that should mean for us. And part three, where exactly is history headed? And then we'll get to uh, unpack that a little bit. Okay, and I'll, I'll also share something about our upcoming revival. Part one, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. What is this and why should we care? Well, to put it simply, the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration, because it's still celebrated among the Jews, for how God provided for his people as they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years after God had called them out of Egypt to be a people set apart, made holy to the Lord. That, that is essentially what the Feast of Tabernacles is. And, and during this feast, which lasts for a full week, by the way, Jewish families would actually uh, build, or in our day, they would rent these tents or temporary shelters made mainly of branches and leaves, right? I was curious as to what this looked like in today's world, and so I, I provided a few slides for you. Uh, can you see that? Okay, so that's probably a cheaper version. If you want to go cheap, that's what you would do, okay? Uh, next one. All right, that, that, that one looks a little bit nicer, I think. Uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, camping out there for a few days. Uh, notice that there's a table inside because the expectation is that uh, God's people would eat as many meals and also sleep, by the way, and sleep as many nights as possible during that week. And then one more slide. You actually have people in there now uh, eating and socializing. Okay, and so that, that's what... I guess the Feast of Tabernacles looks like, practically. And can you imagine the kind of faith lessons that would be reinforced if you ate and slept in these somewhat flimsy structures for a whole week, okay? I, I thought of a few lessons for us to consider together this morning, right? Number one, when God calls us out of Egypt to be set apart as a holy people, he is not calling us into a life of comfort. Rather, he's calling us into a very uncomfortable and life-changing wilderness journey. 
There's one major lesson that would be reinforced again and again as God's people celebrate this feast, right? I mean, again, imagine living in that flimsy structure for a whole week. You'd be forced to think about, why are we doing this, right? Remember that after God's people were given enough time to really have the Exodus experience sink in, right? Processing what a life of holiness meant for God and what, what this meant for them, like now in the wilderness. Virtually all of them, if you remember the story, they, they wanted to return back to Egypt, right? Back to a life of slavery. They didn't want to stay in the wilderness because it was hard. To use a modern day example, they would rather be hooked up to the matrix because even though they would be enslaved to the system, it would still be easier for them than having to face the harsh realities of life in the desert. The actual distance from Egypt to the promised land wasn't very long in miles or kilometers. Like if God really wanted to get his people there, it would have maybe taken two weeks tops. Right? It'd been pretty, pretty easy journey. But see, God's priority was not to offer them the most efficient transportation route. Right? You gotta remember that his priority was to teach them, it was to train them through hardship, through suffering over a prolonged period of time. And so, brothers and sisters, God, he sets us apart not so that we can enjoy the many comforts in this life, although he does offer those comforts at times, right? But he sets us apart so that he can lead us into the wilderness and gradually teach us and train us over time through hardship, through suffering. A second lesson that would have been reinforced <clears throat> is that God is our trustworthy and faithful provider. You see, during the 40-year wilderness journey that God's people had to endure, one clear lesson was that no matter what, he will provide. You know, when there was no food to eat, what did he do? He shocked everyone, right? He caused some unknown substance to fall from the sky, and people were all confused. Like, what is this? <laughs> they didn't know what it was because they'd never seen it before. So all they can say is, it's, it's manna. What is it? Literally, it means, manna means, what is it? But that's how God provided for his people. Unexpected means. When they were tired of eating this manna, despite their sinful grumbling, God provided them with an abundance of meat, right? He, he brought quail out of nowhere, an abundance of it. And when they were thirsty, God provided them with water, gushing forth from the rock. And as believers, we know that represents Christ, right? The rock through which we are nourished and fed, where our thirst is quenched. So God is our trustworthy and faithful provider. Would have been an important lesson, and still is an important lesson that is learned from this feast. Thirdly, I think one important lesson would be Though the wilderness journey is hard, it is a temporary one. See, the flimsiness of the tabernacles alone would remind people of this reality. They, it would be, they would be reminded of the temporariness or the impermanence of this journey. It's like, yes, 
Though the journey is hard, we, we can endure through this because our destination is not too far off. So I offer these three lessons for you to consider as you think about what this Feast of Tabernacles meant for God's people. Brothers and sisters, have I shared anything detached or disconnected from our own reality? Right? You can all relate, right? And that's why I believe the Feast of Tabernacles, it matters to us as well, because the 40 years journey through the wilderness is meant to serve as an apt metaphor for the Christian life that we're called to live. Right? These lessons that were originally intended for the Jews are essentially the same lessons that we are to learn. But the great thing is this, we have a clear vantage point because the Feast of Tabernacles can only be properly understood in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. So we can appreciate this even more, which takes us to our next part, our tabernacling lives. Uh, one of the purposes of the great tabernacle, let me call it that, right, the, the main tabernacle, uh, that's where God symbolically dwelled. It, it was to ensure that his people were kept holy, okay? And that concept actually would have been somewhat foreign to God's people at the time because, you know, we, we take it's for granted that we have God's written word. The fact that we have God's clearly revealed written word is something that we, we, we take for granted very easily. You know, we think it always existed, but that's not the case. Remember that it was under Moses' leadership that God gave his people the written law for the very first time. And it's only then where God's people were clearly informed what was sinful in God's eyes, what was considered pure versus impure, holy versus what is considered defiled in the eyes of God. Without God's written word, those things were not very clear. And so out of that, you have this elaborate sacrificial system that was established through the tabernacle, which further informed God's people of how holy God actually was. Because think about it, right? If, if you were required to bring animals at least once a year, you know, I'm, I'm sure their lives are a little more complicated than that, but they had to offer these animal sacrifices and, sh and see blood shed on a regular basis in order to atone for their sins. And they had to do this over and over and over again for 40 years, it would have been extremely exhausting, but also an eye-opener, right? I, I think that I would have been, man, this, this is a bit too much, I, I think I would have thought sometimes. But at the same time, I think it was a very good thing for people to know, like it, it would have, have been there would be no doubt in their minds that only God could offer proper cleansing and ensure holiness because God alone is holy. That, that concept would have been reinforced again and again because of the way their life was structured. You think about how confused people are in our day, right? I mean, our society has no way of enforcing that kind of truth. 
Like that God alone is perfectly holy. People have no idea. So it's so common for our people or people in our, in our time to think that somehow they can become holy by atoning for their own sins. Just like how Adam and Eve tried to cover their sins with fig leaves. People in our day, they make these futile attempts to try to deal with their own guilt. They can't quite describe why they feel so guilty and shameful at times, but they have this urge to cover up their sins, right? That's what you see time and time again. I was introduced to this new concept this, earlier this week, uh, which is called sports washing. Have you ever heard of that before, sports washing? Anybody? Sports washing? No? Okay. Maybe you should read a little more. <laughs> Just kidding. Be, be in tune with the culture a little more, okay? Um, it's one way entire countries have tried to deal with the human rights violations that other countries would accuse them of. It's like, you know, you may accuse us of enforcing unjust laws. You know, we, we may even be guilty of this. You know, you accuse us of, like, abusing our women and elderly uh, and many others who may have no power in our society, okay? But look at how much good we're doing in the world of golf or in the world of soccer. Look how much investment we're making in order to make everyone's lives a little bit better, that is sports washing in a nutshell. It's a public relations strategy, and it works very well, actually, in this morally confused world we're living in. But it's essentially a way people try to atone for their sins. Another example would be that in our day, people love to tear down statues and erase the flawed parts of their history in hopes that it will make them feel more righteous or justified. But I tell you, it's a fool's errand, and in the end, it's not helpful at all because who doesn't have flaws? We all do. Now, one thing that you should really appreciate about the Bible is how honest it is about the flaws of the past and its people. You take any character in the Bible the Bible is not shy at all. It's, it's brutally honest about the flaws of this person or that person. The person is called a saint, but you look back at his history or her history, and oh my goodness, look at the sin. The Bible is very honest about the flaws of its people. And I think that's helpful because it's through the presence of human sin and failure that we are to we're able to better see and realize our need for a Savior, the one who is able to offer us true holiness, can't you see? In John chapter 1, we read that the Word dwelt among us. It literally reads that Jesus, the Word, tabernacled among us. <laughs> it means that he pitched a tent among us. I love how this one writer, he, he kind of helpfully, he pairs what the tabernacle would have been perceived as in the ancient times versus how Jesus is described in the scriptures. Let me read just a, a few points from what he writes here. He says, think about Jesus as the tabernacle, 
okay? Number one, see, the tabernacle was an outwardly humble and unattractive thing. <laughs> but then in Isaiah chapter 53, we read about Jesus, that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him, right? Jesus is the tabernacle. Number two, the tabernacle was where God met with men. And you have John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus is the tabernacle. One more. Number three, the tabernacle was where sacrifices for the sins of God's people were made. You have Hebrews chapter 10 that testifies this. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And so the, the, this greater tabernacle was this important teaching tool that God used, right, to help us see Jesus a little better, right? The one who tabernacled among us to make us a holy people through his shed blood so that we no longer have to rely upon the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Right? What a grace that is to us. And it would be a great thing if we could just end the story there and just tell God, hey, okay, God, just take us now. We're all ready. We don't need this wilderness journey, okay? Because Jesus, he did everything for us, right? Sometimes I just long that he would just take us, like Maranatha, Jesus, come, right? I don't like how the world is going right now. So just take us, please. That's sort of my cry these days. But unfortunately, our wilderness journey is not over yet, okay? In a previous message I gave, I already explained to you the difference between justification and sanctification, so I'm not gonna belabor the point here, but I'll just simply remind you that it is by grace through faith in Jesus that we are justified, okay? That it means that we are declared righteous by God. We are declared holy by the Lord, though there's still remnant sin in us that plagues us, right? So there is that declaration of righteousness. So in one sense, we are already holy. But the reason why we're called to partake in this rigorous wilderness journey is because God's plan is to further sanctify us meaning he's committed to the work of making us holy in a very practical way where the difficult trials, the pains, the hardships of this journey is meant to gradually shape our faith and character so that we can actually truly resemble more and more of Christ every day. And it's in that context that God calls you to be a smaller tabernacle or temple where God himself resides, right? You are now called to be a holy temple of the living God, right? And you're to do your very best to reflect the holiness of the greater tabernacle who gave his life for you. Okay? And that's what I mean by this tabernacling life. This life is not over for us yet. We have to journey on in, in this body of ours that God considers our temple, his temple that he dwells in. And this is not an act of, you know, something, something that he gives to us because we deserve it, right? It's, in other words, it's not a right of ours. It's rather an act of grace. It's a blessing and 
privilege that we get to enjoy and partake in, undeserved. Right? I hope you, you know, you not only know the difference between what, you know, a, a right and a, a blessing or grace, but that, that you understand that this life that you've been given, this tabernacling life, is a gift, though it is hard, it is a gift that God offers you. If you begin to understand your place in life that way, as a recipient of God's many good gifts and undeserved blessings, I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, that you will be able to live with much more joy and gratitude in your hearts. Right? The reason why you're so filled with anger at times and, and the, you know, this frustration and, and resentment and bitterness is because you don't understand even this basic idea. You, you truly think in your hearts that God owes you a better life. No, that is not the case. We all deserve to be left in Egypt. But God in his great mercy delivered us out of Egypt, out of slavery, to make us a holy people set apart for his good purposes. Can you see that? Amen? I know, we still don't like the hard part. We don't like the hardships. Part three, where in the world is history headed? This next piece is interesting because I've never thought about the future like this before, okay? But it says, verse 20, and on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, think about that, there's gonna be this inscription, holy to the Lord. <laughs> That's kind of a head scratcher. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar, Okay, I mean, so think about this. The bulls, the bulls before the altar, in this life, that's the thing that's reserved as sacred and holy, okay? And the pots in the house, <clears throat> not, not all of them uh, were considered holy, right? And so you, you have this distinction that's now eliminated between sacred and secular, Verse 21, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And even, even the pots in every home, it looks like they will be made holy and sacred. That's the picture, right? This is saying that even what used to be considered the most mundane and common things in life, such as Bells on horses, <laughs> a very filthy thing. Think about it, bells on horses. You got horse, you know, drool, <laughs> all kinds of things, you know, on that bell. Not, not, not a clean thing at all. Even those bells. Even the rusty pots in our homes. They will, be, they will be made holy unto the Lord. That's the picture, right? And so th this is Zechariah's, saying, this Zechariah's way of saying that in heaven, there will no longer be anything tainted or defiled by sin, right? So there will be no more need to distinguish between common use and special use because all will be made sacred and holy unto the Lord. Let that sink in. Lastly, it says in verse 21, 
and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day, right? Uh, I had to look this one up. This is not, this is really a, a strange saying or expression. Uh, now, the word translated, uh, the, the, word, the word translated as traitor, rather, literally means, or literally reads in Hebrew, Canaanite. So uh, the ESV translation committee, they decided to take the word Canaanite and replace it with the English word traitor for some reason. And I had to look this up, why they did that. And it's because they believe that the word Canaanite is meant to be a reference to the Gentiles, right, particularly the Canaanites who were busy trading selling items, right, to feed the sacrificial system. They were trading animals, like, in other words, in the temple. But see, their presence, it actually defiled the temple at the time. And so this final word in Zechariah is saying that God's temple will finally become a place completely undefiled because both Jews and Gentiles, right, Canaanites, will be made into one people, all will be made holy. That's the vision. And I ask you do, you, do you like the sound of that? Do you like what God is doing, moving all of history in that direction? I hope that vision appeals to you because that is where history is headed, right? Where even on the bells of horses, there's gonna be this, this inscription, holy to the Lord. If you long for holiness in your life, I believe that you will like what you hear, okay? But if you don't care much at all about holiness, then I bet all of this sounds very boring to you. <laughs> Not interested. Who cares? This one writer shares some helpful insight. Let me read what he says, this one commentator. Rewrites, what do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? That's a very sharp question, isn't it? It kind of pricks your heart. He continues, if you find it hard to come to church, to sit through service, to hear about God and give him praise, what do you think heaven will be like? It will be no place for you unless... At least the seed of holiness is sown and growing in you now. Think about that, right? We need to be a people who long for holiness in our lives, brothers and sisters. You realize that? Or else heaven will not appeal to you at all. I'm sure some of you truly long to be made holy, but you feel frustrated and discouraged by your lack of progress in this life. And I, I fully Sympathize. I, I can relate to that because I feel like that quite often myself. My encouragement to you is this. Let's not lose hope. Okay? If God promises that he will even make rusty old pots holy, you don't think he will keep his promise to make us holy? He can and he will. So please do not lose hope. Right? Don't, don't be fixated upon your past or present failures. Rather, let's confidently trust in Jesus who has been so clearly revealed 
in, in virtually every chapter we studied together in Zechariah. Do you notice that? Some people have said that Zechariah is the most Christ-centered book in all of the Old Testament. Let me try to demonstrate that for us today, okay? It's the last, last message of this series, so I'm gonna do this, right? In chapter one, I'm gonna jog your memory a little bit. He was the man who appeared among the myrtle trees. Take you all the way back to chapter one. In chapter two, he declared that his city will become a city without walls and that he would be a wall of fire around his people and the glory in our midst. In chapter three, he was the one who removed the filthy garments from the high priest and clothed him with pure vestments. In chapter four, we heard these timely words, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And we were told that it's his spirit who keeps the lampstand of the church burning. In chapter five, we saw two women with wings of a stork carrying a woman in a basket to a faraway place. And through that vision, we were reminded of how Jesus removes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. In chapter six, we saw the four chariots of God go forth into the world to fulfill God's justice. And at the very end, we were told that the spirit of Christ was at rest. In chapter seven, God said, when you fast, is it for me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And through those words, we were reminded of whom we're called to worship. In chapter eight, Jesus showed us how he will turn our fasting into a great feast. In chapter nine, he was the humble king mounted on a donkey. In chapter 10, he was the cornerstone. Chapter 11, he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. In chapter 12, he was the one who was unjustly pierced, causing us to grieve and mourn over his death. And in chapter 13, he was the everlasting fountain. Finally, in chapter 14, he is the great tabernacle who makes all things holy. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So according to Zechariah, whom are we to trust in this life, brothers and sisters? Whom are we to look to? I began this series with the hope that God would use it to bring about a spiritual awakening in each of us. You know, after God's people returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon, we're called to rebuild their broken city and to rebuild God's temple. They had their own COVID-like experience that hampered their progress and caused them to grow spiritually apathetic over time. And these words that we covered in Zechariah were meant to help them rebuild their lives and revive their hearts. And isn't that what we need as well, a reviving of our hearts, a rekindling of our affections for the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters of Cornerstone, may I ask for you to join me in praying to the Lord that he would bring forth a revival in our midst. Now, an argument can be made that our ministry has already been experiencing somewhat of a revival over the past several years, right? But I, I bet most of you are like me and your hearts yearn for more. Don't you want more? You yearn for more because you, you see too much sin in your lives and in the lives of others. You look around and you notice that there's way too much sin as that is common in this world, and you want to see less of it, not more of it, and you want to see more of God's holiness permeating every aspect of life. If that's you, please join me in praying for a revival, a revival that will be produced not by human might nor by human power, but by God's Spirit, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Let's cry out to the Lord together. Let's ask him for a greater awakening that would cause a greater ripple throughout this region so that more hearts would turn to the Lord. If we ask the Lord for rain, as he has called us to do, he will send it. So let's ask him for a generous outpouring of his spirit over our church, over our region, and even over our country. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greater tabernacle that not only ensured the holiness of your people, but also served to foreshadow how Jesus would come and tabernacle among us. Knowing that you have made us holy and have called us to be holy temples where the Spirit of Christ dwells, help us now to resist the temptations of this world and to pursue a life of holiness that would honor you, bless those around us, and offer us greater joy and freedom. But we affirm that true holiness is found only in Christ, and so we gladly embrace him. But we also recognize that we need more of your grace if we're going to faithfully endure through this harsh wilderness journey. So we ask for more of a generous outpouring of your grace over our lives, our church, our communities, and our country, so that more hearts and minds will be awakened and lives made holy and consecrated to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.